joining us this month. Um, I'm Teresa with CrossFit Preferred, obviously. Yes, and I'm Jacqueline. And um, we're two of the nutrition coaches at CrossFit Preferred. Most of you guys know us. And today we're really excited to have Dr. Reeker with us joining us. And we're going to be talking about hormone, hormone health, which is a topic that I'm learning more and more about, but I'm not the expert. Um, I've known Dr. Reeker for probably about three years maybe a little bit longer, but about three years ago, I started noticing some things with myself where I just didn't feel a hundred percent. I felt like my workouts, I wasn't recovering well from them. I felt kind of moody, which is not normal for me. I felt kind of depressed and sad and just like tired. And I just wondered maybe something's going on. And so my brother-in-law is actually who referred me to Dr. Reeker. So Dr. Reeker works with, works with males and females. Um, and she was awesome. She is very thorough in her trying to understand like your background, where, you, where you're coming from. And then after, so she met with me initially, we went over just some questions that she had. And I kind of gave her some background of how, what I normally do, typically do how I was feeling all of that. And then she ordered her the labs for me and then took me back in after the results came in and went in so much detail over all the labs, but not just like your typical hormones. She went over um, micronutrients and what vitamins and minerals I was deficient in. And that was really helpful because I thought I was doing great with my diet and I do pretty well, but it doesn't mean that we don't have to supplement sometime. And so I visit with her um, at least about once a year now, and we just kind of retest things and see how things are going. And I have to tell you, man, within probably two months of getting on um, some hormone replacement and, and managing my um, vitamins and mineral levels, I felt unstoppable, like incredible. In fact, Chris even asked me, are you doping? Like what's going on with you? I could not run faster. I could not lift heavier. I felt amazing. And I was so glad that I, I was 39 at the time. So I was so glad that I was starting to like learn some of this. But since then, I've learned a lot about how hormones can affect or, or keep us from like reaching some of our health and fitness goals and weight loss goals. And so that's why I've wanting to dive into this a little bit more. I've sent several of my clients over to you, Dr. Reeker, and I know that they have all had great experiences. So I really appreciate you coming on here today. Um, will you tell us a little bit about you and your practice, how long you've been in business, kind of what you specialize in, that kind of thing? Okay, sure. And thanks for inviting me today. Um, I've been in practice for about nine years now. I had a original first career coming out of school was uh, as a chemical engineer, but I always loved medicine. So I um, found my way back to getting into medicine. I didn't want to do the traditional Western, as we call it, medicine, um, but I found naturopathic medicine and it just fits so well with what I'd like to do and where I like to approach things. So I went to school and graduated, like I said, about nine years ago. So I've been in practice since then and uh, I just love it. And so I've been, uh, I've got a private practice. I work inside of a chiropractor's office just as an independent contractor. It's really good. A synergy people that come in for chiropractic adjustments are usually really good naturopathic medical patients as well, because, you know, these patients tend to be more concerned about diet and supplements uh, rather than just getting a pill to fix things. So 
um, it's been working out great. I love what I do. That's awesome. Thank you so much. And she's just located in Gilbert, um, like Val Vista in the 202 area. So not too far from most of you guys. Um, and we will be sure to include your contact info and how to get a hold of you if, if you are looking into getting your hormones tested. So we have um, combined a bunch of questions to kind of go over tonight. And, but as we go, if there are things we're not covering, please be sure to comment below and in the chat so that we can cover everything. So the first thing I wanna address is just what are some of the most common hormone imbalances that you're seeing when people are coming into you? Okay. Yeah. The most common things that I see uh, in my patients, I do, I really have a focus on hormones and also digestive health and they're very linked together as you might imagine. So usually everyone's fatigued. So we look at adrenal glands, either too much cortisol or maybe not enough cortisol. We look at thyroid and do really in-depth labs um, to kind of see if there's something going on with thyroid uh, hormones or, um, autoimmune thyroid or some other thyroid resistance. And then we look at blood sugar levels and blood sugar regulation. That's super important for overall energy and health, weight loss, those kind of things. And then of course we look at female hormones in our female patients, which are, you know, estrogen, progesterone, testosterone, take a look at where they're at and how they're, um, you know, how regular cycles are and that kind of thing to get that assessment. And what do you think are the, what do you see is the most common hormones that are um, imbalanced maybe, and maybe this differs depending on age, like maybe, you know, 40 plus, you might see some, something different than under 40 for females. Yeah, it's interesting because I rarely have a patient that comes in that doesn't have fatigue listed as one of their top symptoms. So that's correlated with a lot of things, but definitely with hormones and digestion. And um, so the, you know, the things that we see with fatigue could be thyroid or cortisol levels uh, for women. As we get older, we tend to drop off testosterone. So sometimes that can be really low in women. Um, and then also, especially over 40, we start seeing perimenopause symptoms in women. So we start seeing progesterone dropping off as women are headed into, you know, perimenopause, that period of time between when you are a normal functioning adult <laughs> and menopause where women tend to get a lot of anxiety and insomnia and irritability and those kind of things. So, so that perimenopausal symptoms, are those similar to like just fatigue, that kind of thing, or what else are you looking, what other symptoms are people seeing with the perimenopausal? Okay. Just in general, we see things like, you know, weight gain, like I've been doing the same thing forever and now I can't lose weight or I'm gaining weight, memory issues sometimes, uh, mood swings, uh, especially in today's day and age, a lot of anxiety and really increased anxiety, especially with the pandemic and the lockdowns and then uh, depression that kind of goes with anxiety, low libido. Um, and as we get in the perimenopausal ranges, like irregular menstrual cycles, they either get really heavy and really long, or sometimes they get very sparse and far apart. They can tend to go either way, maybe some hot flashes or night sweats. Um, and then with all that, the, all the hormones really affect digestion. So we might see gas and bloating or constipation and diarrhea, different things. And then another area that we see some manifestations on is the skin, like acne or eczema or rashes. So those are the kind of the common things that I see in patients or symptoms. 
So that's actually one of the reasons I thought to get my hormones tested is because I was having breakouts along my jawline. Mm -hmm. um, and so I know that that is one of the symptoms of hormone imbalance. Mm -hmm. And once we got my hormones figured out, that all went away. So I don't have that problem anymore. Yeah, it's it can sometimes be more complex, but it's always great when it uh, when it works itself out pretty easily. Sometimes we have to dive a little deeper into acne and skin issues, maybe food allergies are sometimes incorporated oh, yeah. into some of those things. <laughs> <laughs> I dealt with acne for a long time, and it is it is a rough like trial and error type thing for sure. So, um, is there any questions that you have so far? Um, I don't know if I have. Well, what's inter interesting to me is a lot of the symptoms that you kind of mentioned are things that I'm going through, even though I'm not right. 40, yeah. 40 plus, but it's just things that I'm going through as a 26 year old Okay. because of, you know, it's just interesting that a lot of some of these symptoms can overlap. Yeah. Yeah. Like, how do you know if it's someone like, yeah. what, what do you do when you have someone that's younger like her and that's dealing with all those same symptoms that you were just talking about, but they're not, they're not perimenopausal. Well, there's a lot of things that are really affecting us. And especially um, women, we see more increased um, cases of infertility, maybe PCOS and other hormone imbalances. So I think part of that too are just some of the things that are happening in our world around us. So, you know, our, our stress levels are through the roof. So stress will affect anything. If you take any kind of a small problem and add a little bit of stress to it, you can really light some things on fire. So we have, you know, mental and emotional stress. We've got, you know, kids. Sometimes we got parents that we're caring for also. We're kind of sandwiched in the middle, taking care of everyone but ourselves. Sometimes we're overtraining. Sometimes we're not getting off the couch. So we got physical stress from, you know, in terms of exercise or also in terms of illnesses or underlying things that might be happening. Um, so electronic stress, there's a lot of debate, you know, about 5G and cell towers and Wi-Fi um, that we could, you know, some people definitely seem more um, sensitive to those than others. There's a lot of uh, an area that I see it really opening up now that we're starting to look at is mold sensitivity and exposure. If you've had any kind of leaks um, in the house that you live in or in the buildings that you're working in or even at the gym where you go, um, if there's any water damage that might have some mold going on, there's different people that have really uh, sensitive reactions to mold. We've got um, you know, our food, our air and our water, all nice sources of toxins for us anymore. I like to say a hundred years ago when I was a kid, things were a lot cleaner. The water was cleaner, the air was cleaner. We didn't have all the chemicals and preservatives in our you know, food and water that we do now. So that's a, definitely a, you know, just toxin load is higher, especially in our younger people um, these days. Um, and then medications, you know, we, some people really do their best to stay away from medications. And sometimes we need medications, but a lot of times they're very overprescribed, such as, you know, antibiotics. Every time you get sick, your doctor might throw those at you or birth control pills can really affect hormone levels. And some women are definitely more affected than others by birth control. Um, there's a lot of underlying genetics that might play into that. Um, and then, you know, antidepressants, a lot of people are on those medications. So there's just a variety of, you know, sub, you know, over the counter and, and prescription medications that we're probably getting too much of. 
we're all eating and drinking out of plastic these days. <laughs> so it's hard to avoid plastic because all our food seems to come in it. But that's another factor as an endocrine disruptor, especially that's in our water and a lot of our food. Um, and then another thing, too, is just our artificial like sense that we have in our clothes detergent. My dishwasher detergent has some sort of scent added. I don't know why we need to put a scent in our dishwasher detergent. So, um, and then uh, the plug-in air fresheners or the sprays, all those things just to make the world smell better. They're all kind of just toxic chemicals. So we're just getting so many of those. And I think they just increase every year. So that's why we're starting to see some of these imbalances and issues in younger people than we used to. So. A lot of information and <laughs> it, it can be really overwhelming for yeah. somebody too, who is going through all of this and trying to do all the right things. Like the majority of our um, people that are on here today take care of themselves for the most part, you know, they're exercising, they're doing what they can to eat, right. All of those things. But then there's so many other areas that we're not paying attention to just some of them that you've mentioned so that it can be really overwhelming, you know, and it, it can sometimes feel like, you know, why do I even try if, if I try in these areas and then all these other things, you know, are still causing me to not feel good or, or my health to not be optimal. So what would you say if somebody was just trying to get started making one step, one step better, what would you say is the most important thing to do first? I would say, and you work with people a lot with nutrition, I think the number one thing that anybody can do is always work on cleaning up your diet. And I have to do this too. <laughs> I get off track every once in a while. But as much as you can, getting organic fruits and vegetables um, and avoiding the, the, like, the clean 15 dirty dozen. Do you talk to your yeah. clients about that? I don't, but I just started learning about it. And I'm like, okay, that's yeah. a great thing to, to use for sure. Yeah, there's a great website, Environmental Working Group. I think it's yeah. just ewg.org. Uh -huh. And so they're the ones every year they'll go out and look at the conventionally grown fruits and vegetables and figure out the ones that have the highest amount of pesticides and herbicides on them. And those are the dirty dozen. And so for the dirty dozen foods, those are the ones you always want to buy organic when you can. They're usually things like apples and berries, mm -hmm. tomatoes, things where the pesticide, that chemical spray is right on the fruit or vegetable that you're eating. And if it's something you can peel, like a banana or avocados, things like that, they tend to be more on the clean 15 list, which are the least toxic ones. Yeah. Another place they're putting a ton of pesticides is on wheat. Yeah. So even uh, just standard wheat to harvest it, they just douse it in glyphosate. It makes it easier to harvest. So if you're doing any kind of wheat products, sometimes it's just the glyphosate people are reacting to and they take wheat out and they feel better. It might not be wheat specifically. It could just yeah. be all that glyphosate. And I've, I've recently had a couple of really kind of patients with a lot of chronic stuff that we just can't figure out. So I've got a urine test now for glyphosate specifically. And I suspected both these patients would come back high and they did. Um, Interesting. and that's, yeah, that's one of those persistent, um, toxins. So it comes in through our fruits and our vegetables. And obviously if we're using Roundup at our house and getting in contact with it directly, but it will actually just get into the body and incorporate into our tissues. So it can take a while to detox from glyphosate. So the best thing to do is just avoid putting it in your body. Um, so there's tests for that. If someone, you know, if we feel like we need to check that, um, 
And then grass-fed meat, organic meat, as much as you can. If you are a hunter or know someone that hunts, that's a great source of um, healthier meat than we can get at the regular grocery store. Um, water filters, I think. Um, I've done a lot of looking at water, and there's a lot of different filters out there. But I think reverse osmosis water is probably one of the cleaner water. It it cleans up everything in the water, so the good and the bad. Right. So minerals yeah, and add minerals. yeah add some minerals into your water take an extra mineral supplement but it takes out all the bad stuff it gets rid of a lot of the fluoride and the chlorine um, and then some of those organic materials and and uh, other nasty things that are in our water so we need water but it's just full of stuff I I'm not a fan of fluoride I don't think there's any human need for that in the body but yet they put it in our water they put it in our toothpaste and they give it to us yeah. when we go to the dentist they put it on my kids teeth yeah I have to ask them not to right I got lucky my insurance charges more so it was easy to tell them not to <laughs> but it's hard to because people are so brainwashed into thinking we need fluoride to prevent cavities but it's just a toxin to the thyroid gland it's a rat poisoning yeah yep it is awesome. We're gonna put I that know on. suck on that <laughs> yeah. So that's one that, um, you know, sometimes it's hard to convince people because we've been hearing our whole lives that the fluoride yeah. is great for us, especially dentists. They'll get into a fluoride discussion with the dentist. But um, so that's why I like RO because it does a pretty good job at getting the fluoride out of the water as well. So um, I would say that's a first place to start. Just start looking at what you're putting in your body, food and water, and start cleaning that up as much as you can without getting overwhelmed because sometimes. Uh, I talked to you about this here. So I'm really good at putting a really complex treatment plan together that sometimes overwhelms patients. So yeah, <laughs> just, yeah. It's nice to like be able to break it down. Like where should I start? Well, and also like cost comes into play right. too, you know, like mm -hmm. if you don't water filters. Yeah. Like where do you yeah. start? What's the easiest place mm -hmm. to start? Um, you know, when I'm feeding a family of seven, like thinking about um, shopping organic for everything it's just not possible like right. we do a pretty good job and we're pretty strict about most of our meats and we definitely could be better about our produce but you know if you buy organic berries and they go bad in the fridge I'm pissed like <laughs> right <laughs> like that's not gonna happen so I like that dirty dozen um definitely that's a good place to start like mm -hmm. start with just making sure those are organic also buying berries that are frozen is a good option that are, that are organic because then you don't have to worry about them going bad. So that's something yeah. that we do is we buy the organic berries. Um, so yeah. that's too. And then cleaning up your water as best you can, getting rid of drinking out of plastic. Um, don't microwave in plastic, like just switch everything over um, so that you're not having those toxins as well. So I like that. That's, that's a very easy step to yeah, take, I think. Yeah, those are some really basic things. Uh, the microwave, some people, I've got some patients that just throw them out. <laughs> They're yeah. so convenient, but they do yeah. tend to cause some issues. So if I microwave anything, I put it in like uh, corningware, um, glass, you know, ceramic type containers. And then I have an air fryer now. So that's really great for heating stuff up. It's a yeah. little slower than the microwave, yeah. but <laughs> yet faster than the conventional oven or a pan. So that's a nice option. Um, so yeah, those are all easy things to do. Um, okay. And then planting your own garden. Now that's gotten pretty popular lately, especially as we're looking at a possible, depending on what you listen to, some possible food shortages coming up in our future. So if you can garden, especially if you can get your kids involved in helping you garden, then what a great way to 
you know, teach them a skill set and get your own organic fruits and vegetables. Mm-hmm. So sure. um, it's planting and, season now. Oh man. <laughs> I, think. I, I think about starting a garden and it's just way overwhelming. Like that's <laughs> not happening in my lifestyle, my lifestyle right now, but someday maybe, you know, we, we had years where we had a garden and when my kids were younger and I didn't work, but now it's like, oh, that's not happening. I have to rely on someone else. <laughs> yeah, it does take a lot of work. We started with, uh, we got these, we got a, my husband bought me a, a grow lamp last year for Christmas. So we just got these little pod things. Um, then you put the seeds in there and you add water and we put them under the grow lamp. And once they sprouted, then we just put them into, we had a box outside oh, from, hmm. yeah. So it does take some time to put in there, but it's just, you know, it's been fun to yeah. learn how to garden, but we're not making enough food to live on. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah. You need a, a gardening co-op so that everybody dro- grows something different and then you just share it. That'd be great. Yeah. Why don't you start one of those? <laughs> yeah. um, okay. So we're kind of jumping ahead, but while we're kind of talking about what to do to eliminate some of those toxins, I want to jump into some of our micronutrients and minerals and stuff like that, because we do need to add some of those things back into our diet because our foods aren't giving us what we need, or we're using, like we said, the reverse osmosis water, which is getting rid of everything in it. So what are some of the um, most common micronutrients or vitamins or minerals that you're seeing that are, that people are deficient in? There's definitely what I tend to see are like B vitamin deficiencies. A lot of people take a B12 sublingual or they'll get a B12 injection, but it doesn't include all the other Bs that we need. B1, B2, B3, B5, B6, B9, B12. So a nice B complex is always great. You always want to do that with food because it can be upset your stomach if you do it between meals on empty. I take mine without food, but I... I feel like I eat like every few hours. So there's always something in there. (laughs) Oh, there you go. (laughs) Yeah. And if you can do it on an empty stomach, that's, that's good. But most people need that as either a B complex or just a good multivitamin that has all the B's in it, but some minerals, it might have some antioxidants and some other things. So either one of those is a good choice. And then, you know, a lot of us are short on antioxidants. The one thing that I think COVID did is we all started taking vitamin C, which is great. Um, there's a lot of evidence out there. If you look for it about, you know, vitamin C, it's something that a lot of other animals make, but humans don't make it. So we need to take that, um, orally. And then, uh, it's just so helpful. It has so many things that it can do for our immune system. So that would be great. If you take too much, it can cause loose stool. So some people use it if they're constipated (laughs) at high doses. And when you're sick, you can definitely, handle a lot more vitamin C orally than you can when you're not sick because your body's just burning through that. So, um, with your immune system. Also, doesn't it help the absorption of iron? And I know a lot of women are iron deficient. And so that's that they can, that you can do is to try and get your iron stores up faster or to absorb more of that iron that you're taking. If it is a synthetic iron, then you can take it with vitamin C and that will help. Yeah. And that's a great reminder. Also, I tell women who are deficient in vitamin C to cook in iron skillets, which is great because then yeah. you can get iron right from the pan and then use some sort of citrus like orange or lemon juice or something to acidify your food when you're cooking in there. And we get a little more iron that way also, but yeah. definitely take it with, you know, red meat meals and that kind of mm-hmm. thing. Um, and then minerals, we tend to see, especially 
these days with people drinking reverse osmosis water, we're starting to see mineral deficiencies like magnesium is one that I have most people put in somewhere. Um, and electrolytes, if you probably have people that have cramps, Charlie horses, that kind of thing. Another tip I learned, if you're waking up more than once per night to urinate, and not because you have a urinary tract infection, <laughs> um, then that's a deficiency of electrolytes. Usually that's sort of a symptom of that. So um, it's not just, and, <laughs> yeah. And then the other things we need like selenium and zinc and all those, they'll be in a nice either trace minerals complex or a good multivitamin. Okay. So it's, you know, it's nice to not need to take a whole bunch of vitamins, but there's some basics. So those are kind of the basics. And if we're looking at digestive issues, we might add in digestive enzymes or probiotics. Mm -hmm. um, some people with a lot of inflammation might add in some anti-inflammatory things like fish oil or boswellia, some of those herbs. So it's just, that's where it gets to um, kind of the individualized. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. And one of the other things that I know that a lot of people are deficient in is vitamin D which generally, you know, you'd think that us living in Arizona, we wouldn't have that issue. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, even being it, so we get most of our, you can get vitamin D through the sun, like that's one of our best ways to, to get vitamin D. But you have to be in the sun for mm -hmm. X amount of time with X amount of skin exposed with yeah. no sunblock and most of the time when we're going outside we're lathering it <laughs> yeah. on, you know, yeah. umbrellas or whatever. And so I use an app called D Minder that yeah. tells me, you know, in fact, I did it, I used it today, tells me based on the UV index, um, what time of day it is, how long I've been out in the sun leading up to today, tells me exactly how much time to spend out in the sun to get the amount of vitamin D that I need for the day and not burn. And I use it all summer. I use it anytime I'm out in the sun, I use it. So I just cover my face mm -hmm. and then try and expose the rest of uh, my body as much as I can. Oh. And it's, it's amazing. Like I absolutely, my, my father-in-law is the one that told me about it about a year ago and it, it really helps. And I have a daughter who is 16 that I'm like, you need to be out in the sun. Like teenagers, they they're inside all day, all the time. Yeah. They're sitting on a at a desk or they're at work or whatever. So if you've got a teenager or if you yourself struggle with depression or anything like that, like get out in the sun and use that D minder app. It's a free app. It's awesome. I love it. Yeah. The other thing too, is uh, a lot of us don't know this. I didn't know it till I went to medical school, but the way we can get sort of internal sun protection is to eat those colors of the rainbow, right? The fruits and vegetables that are purple and orange and yellow with the carotenoids in it, that gives us internal sun protection. So we don't need to lather so much of the chemicals on our skin on the outside. Um, environmental working group, I think they have a section on sunscreens too, which tells you some that are better or less chemically yeah. laden than others, because there's some theories now that a lot of the skin cancers might be caused by the totally. chemicals in our sunscreen. Yeah. yeah. I've read that. That's crazy. I know. So that's great. That D minder app is really good. Um, and then you're right. You have to just be uncovered and most of us are covered up. So, yeah. Um, I don't have many patients that have good vitamin D that aren't taking it. So yeah, well, in um, taking it's great, but you're not. So there's different forms of vitamin D you can take too. My husband takes a liquid form. Oh um, yeah. I'm assuming that's going to get um, absorbed a lot better than um, maybe some other form. But obviously, if we can get it naturally, it's going to be a little bit more bioavailable and absorbed better. Yeah. And especially women, as we get older um, and we're looking at osteoporosis or osteopenia, 
Vitamin D is a really key nutrient to have optimized. You can tap too much of it, which causes negative side effects. But I usually recommend, um, especially for older patients, to add a, like a D3 with a K2 in it. K2 is that um, vitamin that helps the calcium get into our bones oh, okay. and help with bone density. Um, so that's a nice blend. And then the absorption part is pretty interesting. So that's where just working on digestive health all the time. Like it's not something you fix once and it's done, but if we're not digesting and absorbing our nutrients, they're just passing right through us. So so, yeah, (laughs) yeah, exactly. So like digestive enzymes might be helpful for some people. Some people might be low in stomach acid. So we might need HCL, um, to help get that pH down nice and low and help absorb our nutrients. And then the microbiome, anytime you've taken an antibiotic, you've kind of wiped out the bugs in your gut. So that's always something to be, I don't think everyone needs probiotics, but if you do have a lot of digestive issues, it can be a big factor. And parasites, you know, we don't think about parasites being in America, but they can come in, you know, on our raw fruits and vegetables. And so some people have parasitic, you know, infections or overgrowth of yeast or candida in your digestive tract. And those things can lead to you know, what we hear leaky gut and other things, which is a whole other topic, but all that affects hormones too, because our body's just always trying to compensate for a deficiency to keep us alive. And sometimes that compensation is a disease, right? We might be doing one thing to compensate for something else and we might end up with cancer or something. So that's why just optimizing all the time as much as we can is is a great uh, anti-aging and health um, topic. So Yeah. So there's just so many factors, but yeah, without being overwhelming, the first thing to fix, you know, if you need to, you know, change your air filters in your house, keep the air as clean as you can. We can't control much outside our house, but inside our house we can. If you have new furniture, new carpets, they tend to off gas and you smell the chemicals in the air. Um, In Arizona, we keep our houses so locked up tight in the summertime to save on our air conditioning bills. But, you know, if you get a new piece of furniture, Um, or you bring home your dry cleaning, sometimes, especially in Arizona, since it doesn't rain much, just leave them outside for a few days under some sort of a cover or a carport or something. Just let them off gas outside before you bring them inside. Um, They do make low VOC paints and um, that you can use if you're painting. And a lot of people are getting away from carpet just because of the chemicals and the off gassing and also carpet just traps, you know, someone that has a lot of allergies might think about getting rid of carpets. It just traps all the dust and the particles. And so you're just constantly re-exposed when you walk across your carpet. That's, you know, those get into sometimes some higher dollar fixes, but. My um, in-laws have, I think it's called an air dock mm-hmm. and it purifies the air. Yeah. Okay. And they swear by it. Um, yeah. My, my sister-in-law has one too. So kind of go they go towards yeah. that route but um okay so we've got a lot of good information so far let's talk about what are the most common ways to test for hormones what are you what do you feel like are the most accurate ways to test for hormones and what are the different options that people have the way that i usually check hormones is through blood labs or serum blood labs you can test hormones through like saliva or through urine um but the Part of the reason I use serum labs is because it tells us what's in your body right now. Okay. Um, the saliva tests, there are some docs that swear by those. 
they don't tend to be covered by insurance. So, um, and then there's debate about how accurate they are. I think most stocks are in agreement that for like cortisol, if we're checking if your cortisol is high or low, uh, saliva tests might be really good for that. But there's some debate about checking estrogen and testosterone through saliva. So I just tend to stick with blood serum labs. Um, and then the urine tests for hormones, they kind of, they give us a really good piece of information, but they're looking at what's coming out of our body, not what's in our body. So if we have some issues where we just can't figure out, you know, the blood levels look good, but we, you know, we might do a urine test and look at metabolites mm -hmm. and that can be really helpful. Say if someone's got a, a personal or family history of breast cancer or prostate cancer, we can look at the metabolites and look at the balance of different metabolites to see if we need to add DIM or some other supplements to help kind of push estrogen down a different metabolite pathway. Um, so, but I usually just use serum blood labs okay. myself. And um, does it, does it matter like for females, like what, what time in their menstrual cycle they're getting their tests done? How does that affect? Yeah. For women that are still having cycles, um, we want to generally avoid ovulation time. That's the middle part of the cycle. And we see kind of estrogen spikes and then FSH and LH will spike around that time. So um, I usually recommend either within the first seven days, like when your menses starts through day seven is a good time to get labs done or else about a week before your next cycle starts around day 21. And that, you know, that can be tricky if someone's not having regular 28 day cycles, but yeah. the, yeah. the date, yeah, the day 21, we can check progesterone on because progesterone is made after you ovulate. Yeah. Yeah. So mm -hmm. it increases, right? Progesterone increases as you get closer to your or starting your period, correct? Right. So when you ovulate in your mid cycle, um, the follicle that releases the egg is the, also makes progesterone. Okay. And so that's why progesterone will spike in the second half of your cycle. And sometimes women, um, don't ovulate with each cycle. So it's, you know, if we check on say day 21, we can see if you're ovulating, if there's any mm -hmm. progesterone at all, it's also really helpful for, um, infertility too, to check some of these labs and see some women just don't ovulate. Or if you have PCOS, that'll really affect a lot of the hormone stuff too. So, yeah. So just generally avoiding the ovulation, like a few days before and after, if you can figure out when that is. <laughs> Yeah, so I do have a question about that. So what if you have somebody who is having irregular periods and maybe having them more frequently, does that mean that progesterone is high? Um, it could be either. Usually in perimenopause, when we see women's cycle get shorter and shorter and heavier, um, a lot of women end up with a hysterectomy in perimenopause because they'll bleed for 40 days or something. Um I usually start with adding progesterone and that can usually help stretch out a cycle and get it a little bit more regulated. Okay. So it would be more a deficiency of oh. progesterone in that case, because we don't ovulate with each cycle, the older we get. Okay. So that's usually where I start and that works pretty well. I've, I've helped, you know, get a lot of cycles a little bit longer and a little less bleeding just by getting progesterone in. During that so, time. And this may not apply to many people, but um, because I'm 40 plus, I am curious about this. Um, how does having like a partial hy hysterectomy affect um, hormones? 
Oh, that's an interesting question. So your hormones are made in your ovaries, uh-huh. right? Right. So if you have a partial hysterectomy, you still have your ovaries. Right. So we should still see good estrogen, progesterone, if you're ovulating and testosterone is made in the ovaries and also the adrenals. And so with the partial hysterectomy, sometimes what we see is we don't have all the symptoms of the PMS symptoms because all those estrogen receptors in our uterus are gone because we don't have a uterus. So for a lot of women, just getting an ablation or a partial hysterectomy that a lot of the PMS symptoms go away. I don't know if you experience that or not, but it's because there's less receptors for those hormones to work on. So um, that's always a decision to be made, you know, between you and your OBGYN, but Otherwise, your other hormones, they should still be at proper levels because they're made in the ovaries. Okay. That's kind of what I assumed, but I just had never asked anyone, never talked about it. And so I just thought I'd ask. Yeah. And the tricky part too, is if you don't have your uterus, then you don't, it's harder to track your cycles because you're not bleeding. So you don't have a way to track how long your cycles are. Um, So when that happens, we can either do labs to check where things are or, um, some women have middle schmerz, <laughs> that is the name of it. I think I'm saying that right, where you can actually feel when you're ovulating, like oh, a little yeah. pinch or a pain. Um, or some people will measure their basal temperature and temperature goes up around oh, yeah. ovulation. Uh-huh. Yeah. And and then certainly for fertility, women will have the, you know, the ovulation uh, strips that you can use and they'll tell you if you're ovulating. So there's a lot of different ways to check that. But um, otherwise, it's kind of tricky. Um, so then to, if, if somebody gets a partial hysterectomy, are they still going to go through menopause because they still have all their hormones? Like, are they still going to feel all those symptoms? Yeah. So they might have less PMS type symptoms for a period of time until your hormones kind of stop your ovaries, just sort of, um, stop producing hormones. So you'll still have those symptoms at some point where usually we see progesterone dropping off first because we're not ovulating with each cycle. And then estrogen just sort of, what I've seen, it kind of had just slowly slides down and gets lower and lower. It can, and I can check, I've checked in perimenopausal women. Sometimes it looks like there's no estrogen at all. And three months later we have estrogen again. So it's like the ovaries just aren't as consistently making it. So we might start having hot flashes and night sweats, but still be making estrogen at times. So you'll still have those those symptoms. Uh, there are some women that don't have any symptoms of menopause, which is amazing. They just never had a hot flash or a night sweat. And I meet them every once in a while, but not very often. <laughs> so, um, yeah. So when that happens, um, usually the first hormones I start replacing in women as we're going into menopause would be progesterone and testosterone. Okay. And then at some point we add estrogen in just to help with the symptoms. Yeah. And estrogen, you know, as long as you're not you know, we obviously want to make sure you don't have any risk, uh, you know, personal or family history of any kind of hormone related cancers. We might be a little more cautious in those cases. Yeah. Um, but otherwise, if we're using bioidentical hormones, they're the same molecule that your body's been making forever. So, you know, theoretically, it shouldn't increase any risk of cancers if we do it right and keep it at the right levels. It's the synthetic hormones do have a higher risk of cancers and uh, cardiovascular heart attacks and strokes because they're synthetic. They're not exactly the same molecule that the body's been making forever. So that's what a lot of the studies were done on. And so everyone's got a lot of fear about hormone replacement, but nobody's. I've I've had a couple of clients really afraid of it. And so that is, I'm glad you're bringing that up because I was going to ask you about, you know, how do you need to be afraid for the hormone replacement therapies? Or I know a lot of people want to try and use 
food to kind of replace that. And you can do that, but I don't necessarily think that it's something you need to fear, but maybe I'm wrong. Yeah, there's always, you know, pluses and minuses we got to look at. So, you know, I would say the main thing is any personal history of like breast cancer or some ovarian cancer, obviously no hormones for that patient. And we can do some symptom control with herbs and nutrients and those kind of things in patients that just absolutely don't want to do hormones. But otherwise, if you're a good candidate for it, the benefits are like the anti-aging benefits. When we women go into menopause, we tend to see increased blood pressure. We see weight gain. Um, and then there's a period of irritability and mood unstable uh, issues. And then also bone density is really important. So estrogen and testosterone both can really help with that bone density to minimize risk of osteoporosis or osteopenia, which you typically see either in underfed women, maybe women with eating disorders will have it younger um, or in menopause, the bone density starts dropping off. So um, progesterone is really great for sleep and anxiety um, and balancing mood. It's great for any kind of brain inflammation. If you've had, say, COVID or cytomegalovirus, some of the viruses that affect the brain, we can really calm brains down, so to speak, or you know, a traumatic brain injury or concussion or anything like that. It's a progesterone is actually a neurosteroid. So if we can get a, across the blood-brain barrier, then it gets into the brain. It really helps calm down inflammation. So it's got a lot of uses. Uh, outside of just hormone replacement. So there's a lot of benefit um, just to keeping everything in a nice sort of safe area where we're getting the benefits of the hormone, but not overdoing it. I know um, Suzanne Summers, I might not be up to date on my information, but I think she was writing books talking about keeping women, you know, at high enough levels to keep having menses cycles into menopause. And I, I don't think anyone really wants that. <laughs> Nope. Yeah, I mean, but I but I've also listened to podcasts about that as well. You know, huh. that yeah, it's good and healthy for you to continue to like try and have that your cycle as late into life as possible. Yeah. So I tend to err on the side of caution there. You know, I've got certain lab levels that I'm looking for that we want to stay within range and symptoms. So I'm I'm not I haven't done enough research. I'm not convinced about those higher levels that keep women having cycles, but there's probably research out there and doctors that do that. So, um, and then the other thing that's really important too, for keeping all these, you know, female hormones balanced is like controlling our blood sugar and our insulin. And I don't know if you see like a lot of patients that'll skip meals, they're trying to lose weight. And then, um, so they might skip breakfast and have a light lunch and they come home and eat a huge dinner and they can't figure out why they're not losing weight. It's because, but, you know, insulin regulation is just all over the place with that. So, um, yeah, some that's actually something I've done some research on as well. And well, part of it is like how helpful the like intermittent fasting can be for women as they age and kind of get closer to that perimenopausal and how controlling your blood sugars helps with hormone regulation. And so right. you can change that up a little bit as your cycle goes through. And I have um, some clients that are doing that right now where their, their fasting window gets smaller as they get closer to ovulating, things like that. It's really interesting. Yeah, I would like to see some of that. You've got a lot more detailed because you work with patients or clients on a one-to-one -one basis. You get to see and interact with them a lot more than I generally see patients once or twice a year. Yeah. But that's interesting to me. What I know just in general is 
I've got a lot of patients that are trying to lose weight. And so they'll, it's a pattern and I call it the sumo wrestler pattern. (laughs) So I always say, you know how sumo wrestlers gain weight is they skip breakfast and lunch. They eat a huge dinner and they go to bed and then they're 400 to 600 pounds. So we know that's the recipe to gain weight, but yet we all do it, right? We're trying to, oh, I'll skip breakfast and not, I'm not talking about intermittent fasting, but those people that just like that, that um, all or nothing. So like withhold, right. And then break the dam and you know, have no (laughs) self-control. Right. And then you get low blood sugar and you come home and you can't stop eating. And then you wake up, you you sleep bad and you wake up feeling horrible and you're not even hungry at breakfast anymore. So part of that um, podcast that I was listening to talked about how, when we eat a lot of carbs at night, it spikes our insulin levels and that affects our melatonin production. And uh, that's why we don't sleep well if you eat a lot of carbs at night, because it, it inhibits melatonin production. Yeah. It's interesting. Yeah, that's interesting. I'm always learning. I think I've told you, I'm always learning from my patients too. So that's, <laughs> you know, that makes sense from a, you know, just as insulin perspective and losing weight, whenever we've got, you know, food coming in, carbohydrates coming in, our body responds by releasing more insulin to manage our blood sugar. And if we have that system dysregulated for long enough, we start getting insulin resistance and diabetes. So um, that affects but, hormones production. Right. right. Yeah. So and I think it, that, that right there, you know, we don't have to be afraid of carbs. A lot of people are afraid of carbs or think that they need to lower carbs drastically in order to lose weight. And that's not necessarily the case, but you do want to train your body how to, you know, produce the insulin and, and not overload it with carbohydrates, but kind of be more moderate throughout the day instead of, you know, limit so much and then have a big meal with a lot of carbs that is going to affect that insulin. Um, um, production more than if you were like spacing it out throughout the day or maybe slowly increasing carbs week by week Mm -hmm. so your body kind of learns how to you know digest that and and to it doesn't affect your body as much do you think also the 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 order in which you're eating your food could also be part of it too i know i follow some it's mainly for like glucose and you know that type of regulating levels like that way but she recommends like eating your veggies first, then like protein and then like your carbs. Like all in the same meal? Yeah. Like if huh. you're having a I meal, yeah. Like if you're having a meal to eat like your veggie first and then your proteins and then like your starchy, whatever, yeah. rice or whatever you're eating. Just so here. that you're not absorbing all the carbs when your cells are open. And yeah. Like I don't know. Yeah. I, I, I've been trying to do that because I do have an issue with like yeah. blood sugar and all that stuff. And it seems to kind of be working. So hmm. I don't know. It's I would say that's pretty see. like nitpicky. You yeah, know, if you've got right. somebody that's really struggling mm-hmm. with that incident, insulin sensitivity, mm-hmm. then that might be a good option. Right. But, you know, I think the, the extremes are what we see issues right. with, you know, mm-hmm. if we're eating super, super low mm-hmm. carb or if we're eating super high carb, yeah. you know, so it's extremes. Yeah. But that does make sense to me because the carbohydrates are going to absorb the quickest. Mm -hmm. And so especially, yeah, with insulin resistance or pre-diabetes, it might make sense to do like a protein or vegetable first so that you're not getting that rapid, you know, spike in blood sugar. Because what happens too sometimes if it goes up too quickly, it'll drop. And then an hour or two after a meal, you're just tired and lethargic. That's me. (laughs) (laughs) And craving carbs again. So that I call that the blood sugar roller coaster that we get on sometimes. So, but it is tricky because sometimes, you know, we all get so focused on one thing or another and 
as you know, in reality, there's just a different diet that's perfect for, you know, everyone's got a different, unique makeup. And so it takes a while to dial that in. But just getting, in general, the crappy carbs out of your diet, mm-hmm. like the high fructose corn syrup, the sodas, the cookies and desserts, the more we can get that junk food out and just eat real food, <laughs> that alone is... I read about like trying to eat. So if you're just trying to change one thing, you know, just look at how many steps does your food take from from yeah. farm to farm to plate, mm-hmm. um, try and eat things that are, those steps are very limited, mm-hmm. you know, one to two steps. Like if you're having a steak, like there's one step in between mm-hmm. that. Right. And so, um, trying to eliminate those steps. So eat, yeah. avoiding the processed foods, things yeah. like that. Um, I like that. What, so we've talked about hormones and the different things that you're seeing in, in your patients. Um, how does that affect somebody who is trying to lose weight? I know you said that a lot of your patients are coming in and that's something that they're trying to do. How does having your hormones balanced versus not balanced affect weight loss? I think so that's, there's a huge connection there between weight loss and hormones. The first thing um, that one thing, well, one thing I do with all the patients is look at thyroid. So the thyroid is this gland in your throat that regulates our metabolism. And so I like to get a good thyroid panel on everyone. And there's sort of the normal ranges that you'll see on labs for thyroid. And then there's the um, healthy ranges that we see for patients. So trying to get um, those, you know, check thyroid, um, TSH, free T3, free T4. And then I also usually check at least once on patients to see if there's any thyroid antibodies or Hashimoto is pretty common. Um, not every patient that has Hashimoto needs thyroid replacement. Sometimes their hormones are normal, but we have this autoimmune component underlying it that we want to get under control. So that's always great to check a good thyroid panel. And then, um, cortisol, if it's either too high or too low will really affect weight loss. So too high see, too low, is that what you said? Yeah. So people, you know, the early, there's a, some great websites. There's a lot of debate you'll see on the internet. It's always funny to look stuff up, but about adrenal fatigue Uh is kind of the general category. So the theory is, and I I think it's pretty true from what I see is that at first when we start off and we're super high stressed and now that starts even for kids in elementary school, you know, in the old days, we used to get through to maybe college before we had all that stress. And then our cortisol is just pumping out. And so we check cortisol and it's really high and we start getting that mid weight gain in our belly area. We can't sleep at night. We're craving carbs all the time. Um, and then at some point, your body just gets so tired. So that's kind of the theory of it is you just can't make up enough cortisol anymore. So then your cortisol drops. And when it drops, then we're just tired all day long, dragging around, looking for the next chair. And then we're craving carbs again because we're tired. And I think our, you know, reptilian brain or whatever part of that is our brain when we're tired, we just want to eat whether we're hungry or not. So it just starts that whole weight gain cycle because our hormones are imbalanced. So it's, you know, just one big circle, one thing leads to the other. But um, so those are really important to look at. And then in women, like I said, going into menopause, when estrogen drops off, we see weight gain and blood pressure increase. So yeah, it's all just kind of tied together and to look at each person individually and kind of see the pattern and what's going on to get that individualized balance. Kind of sounds like, you know, like if, if a car is your body, 
the engine is your hormones and you've got to make sure your engine is working properly. And then the gas is the food and the fuel you're putting into it. But if your engine's not working properly, it doesn't matter how much fuel, what kind of fuel you're putting into it, it's not going to run correctly. So that's, it so- sounds like to me that they really go hand in hand. Um, you know, if you're, you're just hitting a brick wall over and over, if you don't get the, your hormones balanced and in check you're getting it frustrated without seeing progress and that's why you know a lot of times if I have a client who isn't seeing progress that's one of the first things I think about is okay you know we're doing all the right things and we're not seeing progress something else is going on and we need to figure that out or we're not gonna we're not gonna move anywhere so yeah the other thing we haven't really talked about today but it's super important especially for women is iron levels So I always check women, uh, especially women that are still cycling to check iron and make sure um, we need a certain amount. It's kind of like vitamin D, not enough is bad and too much is bad. So that's Mm -hmm. something that I'll check pretty frequently on women that are still having cycles to make sure we've got enough iron uh, and not too much. It's really important for energy um, also. Iron Isn't iron responsible for carrying oxygen to the blood? Right. Yeah. So that's why people that are low in iron are feeling fatigued and and they're just tired throughout the day or they just aren't, they don't have any drive. And Mm -hmm. it's a lot of times due to low iron stores. And even if you eat like, you know, iron is more dense in red meats, um, spinach, things like that. So if you're, I know for me, before I started coming to you, I was low in iron and I didn't even realize it, but I was a boy. I didn't really eat a lot of red meat. I ate ground turkey. I did not eat ground beef. I ate hardly ever cooked with beef at all. It was mostly um, white meat. Um, and then I started cooking. I switched over to ground beef. I I still don't eat steaks unless I'm like going out or something, but like definitely eat a lot more red meat. And my iron stores are still not where they should be. Yeah. Um, it takes a long time to get your iron up. It's not something that you can take a synthetic iron and it's you know, in a week, you're feeling better. Yeah. It takes over 30 days for iron stores to actually start to increase. And so if you're deficient, it's going to take, you know, six months of consistently eating more um, red meat and taking an iron supplement to really start to feel the benefits of getting that iron store up. It, right. And then the other thing too, is just to regulate your cycles. So if you're bleeding a lot or having heavy cycles, that's, you're just losing your iron. That's mm-hmm. how we lose it is through blood. So getting that regulated can be helpful too. And I do every once in a while also see men that are low in iron. We'll talk about men next time, but yes. um, I always check men for iron because nobody else is checking men for iron. And I've had caught cases of both really severely iron deficient men, but also severely excess like hemochromatosis. Yeah, I have, an, I have a client right now. His iron levels are really high and he's getting treatment like blood treatments where they actually take his blood out. I don't know if they're what they do to it. He hasn't like talked to me about it, but he's That's, getting like weekly tra- treatments. Oh, wow. Weekly. Yeah. So the best way to get iron levels down are just to take the blood out. They don't put it. They just take it don't out. Take it they just, oh, take, okay. it they out. just oh. take it out. Yeah. Yeah. And then the, That's your body makes sense. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and he's not allowed to eat any red meat. He's not allowed to eat any. Wow. He's like fish wow. and chicken. That's it. Because wow. his iron stores are really high and it can be really toxic. Yeah, there's a condition and women have it too. We just don't usually catch it until menopause called hemochromatosis. And it's a genetic uh, thing where you absorb too much iron from your food. So in women, we don't usually, like I said, that while you're having your cycles, you might not notice it, but afterwards. So it's important for women in menopause to get iron levels checked as well. 
And if you do have high iron, or this is another tip for absorbing more iron, black tea will block the absorption of iron. So never have black tea while you're doing an iron supplement or a high iron meal. I heard um, if you have high iron also that alcohol consumption can affect um, iron stores. Like it's, it's bad yeah. if you have high iron, don't, like, don't consume alcohol. That's something I, I just read this last week because of my client. Yeah. And I'm trying to think of that mechanism. It makes sense, but I can't think of exactly why. Yeah. I can't remember exactly the details. Um, you had, do you want to ask her about that? The last one? Yeah. So I, I feel like we've talked a lot about cortisol, but how would you describe, I guess, cortisol, cortis, cortisone? Is that how I say it? Cortisone. Cortisone. Um, and I guess how to properly balance those is one of the part of the question too and what's okay between the both so cortisol um it's an interesting thing <laughs> let's say that and so it's released when we're stressed and there's a lot of different reasons for stress and there's some people that just you know they come to see me and they're in a high cortisol state so um treating either high or low cortisol fairly similar. One is to regulate sleep as best we can. A lot of us aren't getting enough sleep or we're not able to sleep. We have insomnia or maybe we have young kids or something. So that's important for any, whether it's high or low, is to start working on proper sleep, getting good deep sleep um, and really focusing on that with sleep hygiene and different things, uh, maybe you know melatonin or what. There's a few different things that can help. There's a lot of herb blends out there. They're called adaptogens. So we've all heard of like ashwagandha as one of the adaptogens. So that can be helpful. There's a really great product that uh, Integrative Therapeutics makes called Cortisol Manager. There's other people that make cortisol manager type supplements. That's just one I'm really familiar with. So that can be really helpful for people to help lower your cortisol levels as Cortisol Manager or some similar um, blend of nutrients. Um, so those are all great things. Keeping your blood sugar, you know, regulated, don't eat high carb, high sugar meals, all I call it leading the boring life. <laughs> you go to bed on time. You're not drinking alcohol. She's been doing for I, I just eat like beef and vegetables and that's pretty much it. <laughs> she completely changed her workouts and oh yeah like low can't stress do, can't do high intensity workouts like yeah. just very well what's interesting is because you say stress and I when I first went into you know to talk about it because I noticed you know I wasn't feeling right I was gaining weight super bad inflammation and she was like well how's your stress and I'm like great like I feel fine like as far as the stress you know because I'm thinking emotional like that type of stress. And she's like, well, it can be more than just, you know, the emotional side, like it can be what you're actually physically doing stress on your body, the stress on your body. And mm -hmm. I was like, Oh, yeah, I guess I do <laughs> a lot. <laughs> when it comes yeah. To <laughs> so you had to cut that your prescription was to cut back on exercise? Pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. She had to stop crossfitting. crossfitting. <laughs> Yeah, it's interesting too, you know, cortisol and exercise. Some people sleep like babies if they exercise in the evening. For other people, it raises cortisol and they don't sleep well. And that's very, it seems to be very individual to people. Um, so even what time of day you're exercising can make you feel better or worse. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and definitely staying hydrated affects 
the physical stress on your body, which, you know, it all just ties together somewhere along the way. Um, and then, you know, the other things that, that I was trying to point out earlier that are stressors that we don't think about are our environmental toxins or, mm-hmm. you know, when I'm in the city in Phoenix, I can palpably feel a difference when I go to Flagstaff without all the Wi-Fi and the 5G up there. I just sleep yeah. like a baby up there. So we can't really shield ourselves from that. I don't really know the best. Haven't figured that one out yet. Make sure your bed isn't right by the power meter on the outside of your house, things like that. So, but yeah, I bet you see a lot of CrossFit or over-exercisers. Yeah. And that can affect hormones. So women, you know, the highest category of really fit women that I see with PCOS are like soccer players because they're just running around all day long for two to three hours a day and eating carbs like crazy. And they're not overweight, but just that over-exercise and all the carbs really affects hormones. And so PCOS is pretty common. And like, I think of soccer players, probably, I don't know if gymnasts so much, but you know, other sports, probably basketball players too. Mm-hmm. Um, and probably CrossFitters too. Yeah. So we've covered so much and we probably need to wrap things up soon, but we may want to take um, next month. We're going to be meeting with Dr. Reeker again. We're going to talk more about like men's health and men's hormones, but we might want to take the um, 10 or 15 minutes of next month and just touch on a few things maybe that people um, we didn't cover, or maybe people are, might come up with some more questions there. We do have a couple questions in the chat that I want to go over. Dusty had talked about how she is, um, she wakes, she's not sleeping well. She wakes up often really, really hot. She says she is in menopause and working through it. She does work with a hormone specialist, but is there anything else that she can do to balance her hormones um, that maybe she's not already doing or anything you can think of? Yeah, usually the hot flashes in perimenopause, it's more of a progesterone deficiency, but when you're in menopause, we, you know, estrogen is really important too. So getting those balanced, any amount of alcohol I find can affect people. I see men, men having hot flashes. The first thing I ask is, are you drinking a lot of alcohol? Because in the middle of the night, your body's processing all that and you'll get a hot flash from alcohol. So that might be something to consider if there's no alcohol coming in, then that's not a factor. Um, another thing that we see with hot flashes is just, uh, someone who's really sensitive to histamines. Mm-hmm. So we, that's a whole new other topic, but histamines are, it's a amino acid in our body histidine that converts to histamine. And it's really, uh, responsible for a lot of things, but if we have too much histamine, that's when we might have hot flashes or heat intolerance. We might see, you know, nausea, migraine, headaches, those kind of things, seasonal allergies. So a low histamine diet might be helpful. Okay. Um, and then a lot of, uh, a lot of the antidepressant medications are actually antihistamines. And that's part of how the action that they work is they work on that histamine component. We have, uh, histamine receptors and four different types in our bodies. Um, and so there's, you could get medications, of course, to block your H1 and H2 receptors, but the rest of it is just maybe diet. Look at, if you just Google low histamine diet, you're going to find a ton of information. Awesome. And a lot of those healthy foods are high in histamines. So it's when you start looking, well, I'm eating a healthy diet. What do I need to change spinach and tomatoes and certain fruits and vegetables, fermented foods, those can be high in histamines. So even though they're healthy for us, they might be making us feel worse. 
Interesting. I know that's, that is really interesting to hear like all these foods that um, can be causing inflammation and things like that, that you think are fine, you know, potatoes, onions, tomatoes, all of those mm -hmm. things that are, that can be inflammatory or, um, and you're like, well, that's a vegetable. How can it be bad for me? Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah, um, exactly. There was a question earlier. Oh, is that Megan? Megan yeah. Yeah. One, one sec, Meg. I'm going to just talk real quick to Keetra. She, she asked about, um, how to, what kind of food she can eat to help regulate hormones. So I know like with progesterone, you can eat like root vegetables and like tropical fruits and stuff like that as your, if you're trying to increase progesterone. So I, but I don't know much about like, um, if there are foods that we can be eating to, that will help with either testosterone or estrogen. Do you know anything about that? There's, I haven't done a lot with it, but there are some doctors that do, have you heard of seed cycling? Uh-uh. So there's the theory is that the different kind of fats that are in seeds can affect your hormones. And so if you just Google seed cycling, S E E D okay. like pumpkin seeds, sunflower seeds, those kind of seeds, seed cycling, and it'll tell you which ones I, I don't have a lot of personal experience, but it might be another way to help affect our hormones by changing up those, um, omega, you know, three, six, nine levels throughout our cycle. Um, and then there was something else. I just went to a great conference on hormones and then there was something else about low progesterone. I'm not remembering, but I'll look it up for next month Okay. Yeah. and maybe have a little bit more on that. Um, and then Keetra, I have a good podcast I can send you about, um, hormone health and like how to, this one was all about like intermittent fasting and what foods to eat to help with progesterone production as you go into ovulation and closer to your period and how to adjust your intermittent fasting window as you get closer to your cycle. So I can send that to you. I follow someone that she's all about like how to eat, like based mm -hmm. off your cycle, based off your cycle. Yeah. Yep. It's really interesting. Yeah. It's, it's really a lot of work, but if it you're is. willing to put it, put the time into it, I have yeah. a couple clients that are doing it right now. And yeah. Um, one that is perimenopausal that she's following it and she's been doing it for about two months now. So, mm -hmm. but it's also something that you just don't really know if it's going to help until you try it. Yeah. Yeah. So. Send me that podcast too. I'd like to listen okay, yeah, to I that. <laughs> Megan, did you want to ask her something? Um, just talking about the histamine, um, I had, I was listening to a podcast about it. And one of the things that she had said was if you're having, um, issues like histamine type issues, and you're taking a lot of, um, antihistamine, like allergy type medicines, it actually prevents your body from properly breaking histamine down in your body and can actually make all of that worse. Yeah, there's a couple of ways to look at histamine. So one is reducing the amount coming in with a low histamine diet. And the other way, um, and then we have the histamine blockers, both the medications, and then there's natural histamine blockers like quercetin and stinging nettles and those kind of things. But the other way is to support those histamine detox pathways. So that's another thing I work with on patients that do have high histamine. So things that help support the histamine detox pathways. Um, one of them is a DAO enzyme. Have you heard of that one? Did that come up? So it's an enzyme that some people don't make enough of in your digestive tract. And so you can, there's no great way to test some of this stuff. If you have a, like a genetic 
tests. Sometimes you can pick up some of these mutations, but there's a, so DAO enzyme might be helpful. It's something you take with a high histamine meal. So it helps process it. Mm -hmm. um, the other ones that are really helpful are like B5, B6, copper. There's a few nutrients that really support those histamine pathways too, um, that we might do higher doses of outside of a multivitamin just to mm -hmm. support those detox pathways. So there's a great website, um, Dr. Ben Lynch, if you can see this chart behind me, <laughs> he does a lot of this stuff with genetics and he's got a really great write-up on histamines. So let me see if you Google like MTHFR and then histamine and then Ben Lynch, you can find it. And I can send you the link to yeah. So do you want me, yeah, send me that. Let me see if I can, without hanging up, if I can find that link and I can just, I can just type it in right here, right? Oh yeah. You put it in the chat. All right, let me see. We're in electronic. There we go. I have it on my desktop. All right, let me see if I can figure out how to go back over here. There we go. So there's that link that to Ben Lynch. So that's a really good place to start to just start understanding histamines, where they come from, and how we can support lowering them in our body. But histamine, I think I look at anyone that turns red really easy or has seasonal allergies, migraines, anxiety, for sure, panic attacks. This might be a good pathway to look at too. And a lot of these are healthy foods. They're just high in histamine. Awesome. So. Awesome. Okay. So we, we've covered a ton of stuff. That was so great. Um, hopefully you guys learned some things. If you guys have more questions, please write them down. We will be talking to Dr. Rieker again next month. Um, for our nutrition talk and we can cover more of this stuff if you guys want. We will be focusing a little bit more on men's health and men's hormone health, which is a whole new ball game that I don't know anything about. So I've got some work to do in the next month. Um, and if you guys want to make an appointment with Dr. Rieker, tell us how we contact you. Um, yes. Yeah, so for anyone that's listening to this podcast or YouTube, whatever it is, <laughs> Zoom call, either live or in the future, just let when you call, let them know that you found me through Tiersa and we'll get a discount on that new patient intake form. And so the best way to schedule is just to call my office, 480-899-9923. I'll type it in here. And I am inside of Arizona Chiropractic. So when you call, that's who's going to answer. We'll say Arizona Chiropractic. So just schedule a new patient intake visit. And then um, I'll usually, they usually get your email address. So I'll send you my intake form ahead of time and then have you come in and bring whatever medications and supplements on so we can do a really good review, figure out if you need to get labs ordered. Most people do, even if you have current labs, I usually look at a few more things and then uh, just get some labs ordered based on what we feel like we need to check into and then kind of go from there. And just also to mention real quick, if you don't have insurance, she works with you as well. I did not have insurance when I first started working with her and she's able to give you guys some cash prices and stuff as well. So, um, well, thank you so much again for joining us tonight. We are all leaving full of knowledge. So we really <laughs> appreciate it. Hopefully we can all think of one or two things that we can work on to help us with our hormone health. And um, we look forward to speaking with you next month. And thank you everybody for joining us tonight and sticking to the end. There was a few of us that made it, right? <laughs> yep. All right. All right. Thank, you. thank you. Bye. Bye. Bye.